Well, it's good to be back uh, and preaching uh, once again. I've uh, not preached for more than a month now, um, at least here. Um, and so you can stop the jokes about whether or not I work here. I'm back. Um, and just so you know, the beard's here to stay. Um, it's not going anywhere. I, I know most of you couldn't care less, but for those of you who care, I just wanted to say that. We're back uh, also on a series um, uh, in the book of Psalms. We obviously haven't been able to cover all of them, but we've selected portions, representative portions of what the Psalms are all about. And for the next two weeks, which is the way we'll wrap it up, we're going to talk about what is called the song or songs of a sense. Two of them were read this morning. They run from Psalm 120 through 132 or 34. And in your Bible, there's even a little subheading under each one of them called Song of Ascents. What are they? Well, in brief, they're pilgrimage psalms. They're songs that were sung by pilgrims, primarily going up to Jerusalem. That's what we know of them. We speculate a lot of other things about them, but we're quite certain that's exactly how they were used. As a matter of fact, these pilgrims would have sung it three times a year if they were close enough to Jerusalem to go up for three feasts. And as they traveled, they sang these songs as they ascended to Jerusalem, the highest point in the land of Israel. And the center of Jerusalem, the temple. Today I want to cover three psalms. I know you don't think I can do it in 20 minutes, but I can. Or 25 Three Psalms, 120, 121, and 122, lifting a theme, a major theme from all three. Now, I want to start out this way, acknowledging something. None of us have a heritage of being a religious pilgrim, right? I mean, nobody has a sacred site that they go to three times a year. Most of you, anyway. Most of you don't even identify a sacred site that you journey to once in your life. We don't think quite like these people thought. So for us, maybe we need to enter into the mindset of these singers by trying to borrow from something that might be ours. And for me, the borrowing means remembering a trip. I was raised in South Florida, but I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. My grandparents and all my relatives, except for my brothers, lived in Louisville. So early in my childhood, we began a journey twice a year to Louisville, Kentucky from South Florida. Now those journeys sometimes ended up being only once a year, but we never missed at least one journey once a year at Christmas time. My dad was a professor at the college so it was perfect. School was out, we were done, and we'd pack in a car. Three boys in the back seat. We never had a van. We also never had videos. That goes way back. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't even have electronic games like Game Boys that you used to remember. Some of you maybe. Nothing. All we had was each other in the back seat in our parents' hands. Stop that! It was a journey. I tell you, it was a journey. And um, we stopped, we did, for gas and to go to the bathroom. And that was it. 
It was a 1,000 mile journey. And in 18 years, I can remember one time stopping at a hotel. We drove right through the night and dad did all the driving. And there's all kinds of memories associated with it. Because in my childlike mind, Louisville was the promised land. I know it's kind of sick, but it was. <laughs> and all my relatives had their teeth. Yes. Honestly, I, I loved Louisville. That's a Kentucky joke, okay? I was born there. I loved Louisville. It meant things to me. It meant Christmas. It meant cold weather, which I never got in Florida. It meant snow. It meant friends that I hadn't seen for a whole year and family who would dote on me and say, my, how big you've grown. And I remember the trips. I can still see the sights. And I can still smell my brothers in the back seat. <laughs> it was a journey. It was a pilgrimage. These people would remember a pilgrimage. Something like that. Remember the story of Jesus? When they lost him? They didn't know where he was. He was coming back from Jerusalem. They were on a pilgrimage. <laughs> Actually, of course, Jesus knew exactly where he was. Debating with the theologians in the temple. When they found him, they asked him, what are you doing? Why would you go away? He said, I've got to be about my father's business. And they wondered, what in the world does that mean? Jesus knew pilgrimage to Jerusalem, even as a young child. Eventually, he took his last one into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, facing his imminent death. And it's likely he sang these songs. They're rich in tradition. They're more than sentimentality about a journey, like I have sentimental memories of the trip to Louisville. They're more even than just a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They became for those people and should become for us something much larger. They're about a spiritual journey, a life together as we learn what it means to be followers of Christ. So let's take a look at three of them very quickly. The first has not yet been read, so I'll read it for you. Psalm 120 reads this way. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach and I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know what this psalm indicates, among other things? It indicates a pilgrim who acknowledges his own reality. It's a pilgrim who says, Wow! I live in a land that makes me a foreigner. I live in a place where people think like this and I think like that. I live in a place of war and I long for peace. I live in a place that is not right and I want all things to be made new. And I long for the day 
as I journey to Jerusalem where everything will be made new. Let's put it in modern terms. You know what this pilgrim is saying, or we should say? We should acknowledge our own reality this way. And here's what it means to acknowledge our own reality. Here's the reality. The next election is not going to solve everything. The next scientific breakthrough will not fix all the problems. Your next promotion will not satisfy you. More money won't be the solution. Because every one of those is from the problem. He says, I live in the problem. I'm submerged in the problem. I live with Meshach and with Kadar. And I don't want to be here any longer. I long for everything to be made new. Meshach and Kadar is a very general reference to warlike tribes. They're not in a particular location as much as they are a description of people actually parted by centuries. But he uses as an image. And the image? Oh, it's modern. We know it, right? World War I was the war to end all wars. And in that war, 30 million people were killed. Only a short time later, as history goes, World War II erupted. Same place, same people. Really, the same issues. And this time, 60 billion people were killed. Do I need to tell you the rest of history? No, because for most of you, you know it all too well. It's one war after another. It's one act of violence after another. It's one crazed gunman eliminating life. One right after another. The pilgrim says, I live in this and I want out. It's a confession, really, of his own reality. You know what else he's acknowledging is not just where he lives. He's acknowledging that he needs to be rescued. He's suggesting, as we all need to take into our own subconscious, he's suggesting that the solution to the problem is not here, it's out there. And the only way to accept that reality is to reject something in order to accept something else. There's two great rejections in the Old Testament that stand out as images for this. When Abraham left Mesopotamia, he turned his back on everything that was sophisticated and intellectual and the high point of culture at that time. He turned his back on it and he walked in the path that God has chosen. Where? He didn't know. When? He wasn't sure. Why? Because God called him. And then Moses... He turns his back on Egypt. To turn your back on Egypt meant to turn your back on the highest of civilizations. The place that understood how to fix every problem in ancient culture. And he walked away and he followed God into a wilderness. Where? To a promised land? He'd never seen. How? Pillar? <laughs> 
of fire by night and a cloud by day. When? A long time. And you know, he only saw it. Some of them walked in. The pilgrim says, I understand my circumstance and I have to turn my back on the reality that is the problem and I have to acknowledge it can't be fixed by that. I must pursue God. Intellect and power in our world are divorced from God and they're held up as the solution. There's some chilling words by a man called Abraham Heschel who put it this way. Here's our condition, he said. Man reigns supreme with the forces of nature as his only possible adversary. Man alone, free and growing stronger. I'll interject. That just makes me quiver. Then he says, in this condition, God is either non-existent or unconcerned, according to this perspective. It is human initiative that makes history and it's primarily by force that things change. Man can attain his own salvation. That is the culture we live in. And the pilgrim says, I want to acknowledge it and reject it and follow God. Because the culture won't fix it. The culture's the problem. The second psalm, Psalm 121, it's the one that's so famous. It's often called the traveler's psalm. People pray it frequently over their family. They pray it before they take trips. It's those wonderful words, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he won't let your foot slip or stumble. He's watching over you, this great God of Israel and the one who never slumbers or sleeps. The sun, it's not going to smite you by day, nor the moon by night. God's going to take care of you. Psalm 121 is remembering sovereignty. It's the pilgrim saying, I acknowledge my reality, now I remember that you're sovereign. And as I walk with you through this life, I acknowledge my reality and I remember that you're always with me. I remember that you're by my side all the time and I look up. Why do I look up? Because my solution is not in the condition itself. I look up because I need help and it's out there. And I look up and it seems like he says, I look to the hills for my help, right? But he really doesn't. As a matter of fact, the hills were infested, as we know from Old Testament, descriptions of stories of the hills with multiple gods, the gods of Baal, temple prostitution, even sacrificing of children. That was a representation of the hills. He doesn't say, I look to the hills for my help. He says, I look to the hills. I look above myself. Where does my help come from? It comes from above the hills. It comes from the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made the hills, the one who made the valleys, the one who made me, the one who made all creatures around me in the mire that I live in. I look above the hills to the great God of the universe for my help. You know, this description is not the nonsense of the so-called prosperity gospel. It's not a description 
that suggests that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. Why is it not a description of that? Because we got a brain, that's why. Because we know the Psalms. And we understand that the psalmist who says these kind of things is also the psalmist whose foot actually does slip, who really does have trouble in his life, who watches his friends and relatives die. And we know from the rest of Scripture that even though we hold tightly to this promise, we still understand the reality of pain and affliction in our world. That song we sang was wonderful. Remember the words of that song. Love, your love, is like a hurricane. And I'm the tree bending beneath the weight of your grace and mercy. In the midst of that bending and the weight of your grace and mercy, suddenly, out of nowhere, the reality smashes into my senses that these afflictions are actually eclipsed by glory. That's what the psalmist is saying. Not that everything's going to be perfect, but even in the midst of the afflictions, this glory will eclipse the human reality that is yours, and you'll understand that what the psalmist is saying is, I will preserve your soul. No evil can harm you. No affliction that comes your way will ever touch your never-dying soul if you leave yourself in God's sovereign care. It's not about stupid circumstances in life. It's about the sovereignty of God who understands the beginning and the end. So the psalmist says, I'll acknowledge my reality in Psalm 120. In Psalm 121, he says, here's what I want to do. I want to remember that you're sovereign, that I'm in the palm of your hand. In 121 and 122, he says this, I want to allow worship to be the framework for my life. Can I read those words again? I know we read them already. See, this is the pilgrim who's been walking. The pilgrim who has said, I understand my own reality. The pilgrim who says, I really am embracing the sovereignty of God. And he sees something as he's walking. (laughs) He sees Jerusalem. It's up there. It's that city on a hill. And he breaks forth in music. And he says, I rejoice to those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built up like a city that is closely compacted together. That's where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. You know what it is? It's a pilgrim who says, that's where life makes sense. At the heart of Jerusalem is the temple. And the heart of the temple is worship of the Almighty God. And as I trudge along and the stones slip beneath my feet and my reality seems to overwhelm me, I look up and I say, Oh, Jerusalem, 
the city of God, the center of worship. May you be the center of my life. May peace always be there so I can experience it. May my brothers and sisters experience it too. In effect, he says, I want worship to be the framework for my life. You know how important a frame is, right? I love great works of art, and I have a couple in my office. And there's nothing like a frame. Because a frame, especially the right kind of frame, which is the right kind of colors, brings out things in the painting that you didn't see before it was there. A frame focuses your attention on the work of art. Worship is a frame. It frames life. It helps you to focus on what's real. In our house, we have a few cross stitches framed. They were done by my mother early on when we got married. And they're some of them scripture passages. And they were done by loving hands, and they looked perfect to me. You know why? Because it was stretched on a frame. Give her the cloth. Ask her to cross-stitch. She can't do it without a frame. That frame's got to tighten that cloth. And then and only then can the story or the words be seen correctly. Worship is like that for a pilgrim. It frames our life. It stretches us. It helps us to understand reality. Let me put it another way. It overturns our reality. Because our reality says that the most real thing in the world is the visible. And worship says the most real thing in the world is the invisible. The invisible presence of an almighty God. The invisible sovereign hand of God and the affairs of humanity and in your life. All those things, they're so counterintuitive. But in worship we're called back to them. I want you to notice something else. It's corporate worship he's talking about. He's saying, let us go up to Jerusalem. I can't wait to be there, the peace of Jerusalem, the center of Jerusalem, the temple with the people of God because it's with the people of God that I get my center. You know, personal worship is profoundly important. There's a really earthy human place in my house that's also very sacred. It's my basement. And it's not just because it's my man cave. (laughs) It's because that's where I begin my day. In reading the scripture and in prayer. But I want to tell you this. It's absolutely inadequate. Why? Because as sincere as I can be, I'm still clouded by my own personal prejudices when I try to worship God only on my own. It's in the context of community where people challenge my ideas, where the scripture is read and sung and prayed and preached that God intersects my prejudices and turns my ideology upside down and gives me a new understanding of what he read and what is preached. It's in the context of community. Community worship. That I'm transformed. You know, unfortunately, we take the most incredible thing and we mess it up. We're good at that, aren't we? 
We can take worship and mess it up. One of the first ways we mess up worship is that worship can actually become all about us. Is that the ultimate irony or what? Worship is about God, not about me. I love what Eugene Peterson said about this. Um, by the way, I tweeted it this week, if anybody follows me. It's a great quote. Here's what he said. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. You see, I turned it upside down. We, we talk about worship frequently as our expression, our feeling, our emotion towards God. And Peterson says, no, 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 that's important. But get this, what is really true about worship is that you see the truth concerning God and you express it. And in the middle of that expression of truth, sometimes you're graced with a feeling. When we worship, whether we feel or not, we worship in truth. And that's what transforms, not our feelings. We worship what is true. And sometimes we actually feel it. By the way, do you know worship is commanded in the Scripture? You could ignore the command. But it's a command. Worship God. Make Him the center of life. Just a couple of comments in conclusion. You know what the big challenge of this compared to that little story I gave you about traveling to Louisville is? We knew how to get there. Yeah, we didn't have MapQuest, GPS, all that stuff, but didn't need it. Dad knew the route. It was well marked. Even in the dark, that glowing sign that said I-75 was there. Said north or south. We weren't confused. It's not the same with faith. We journey to a place we've never seen. We walk with an invisible God. The path seems to look different every day. And we're called to follow. You know, we don't have one report about a guy who came back. Oh, you might say innuendos in the scripture, but really, no real report. John gives us an image. It's, it's a revelation of what it is going to be like in the end before he arrives. What we have is a promise. It's out there. One day God's going to make everything new. And you've got to trust it. The invisible, all-knowing, personal, loving God. One of my favorite um, works of literature, of course, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> Remember, really on more than one occasion, Lucy and the kids, they're traveling through the dark. They can't quite figure out where they are. No North Star to guide them. 
And somewhere in the midst of the haze and the fog and the darkness, they're terrorized by the sound of a roaring beast, a lion. When the fog clears, when daylight comes, they realize it's been Aslan all along. Roaring to the right, then to the left, then behind, then ahead. Always unseen, but heard, guiding them through the darkness. That's a picture of the journey. And these psalms, they're like a compass for an invisible path because they point to God. You know what these psalms are? They're a reminder to pilgrims about how to live. But there's something else. If you're listening, they're an invitation to those of you who might not yet be a pilgrim. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this was reality? It is. Would you like to be a part of it? You surrender your life to God. Let's pray. Lord, you've been so gracious to us by giving us the wisdom of your word and by giving us a fellowship of believers who challenge us and remind us by giving us a community to worship in which centers our life. We pray, Lord, that you will not allow us to neglect the things that are important. You will help us to believe that the things that are invisible are just as important, even more so, than the things that are visible. You will give us wisdom as we navigate the affairs of our life and try to discern your will. We thank you for calling us, Lord. We thank you for the eternal hope that is ours. And we look forward to that day when you will make all things anew. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.